Welcome to the Hopeless Wonder Podcast Extra, episode 17, with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers, and Andy McBride. And welcome to you, listener. Hope you've had a good week or weekend, depending on when you're listening to this. So without further ado, let's catch up with my co-host. So Craig, let's start off with yourself, mate. Um, some big news that came out of Glasgow on Wednesday morning, which we didn't anticipate really this quickly either. Um, but we'll cover that shortly. But more to the point, how have you been doing, mate? I'm good, mate. I am very, very well. Uh, excited to talk about Rangers and all things Scottish football. Uh, but we'll come to that. What about yourself? How are you? Yeah, keeping very well. Um, again, I suppose I'll bore the listener and say it's been really hectic at work. Um, the same old stuff of being back to back with meetings and feeling like I'm not doing enough exercise half the time. But yeah, I do my best to kind of at least go out and have a walk at times anyway. And Andy, a convincing win for United on Sunday against Newcastle, which we'll cover off shortly. Um, obviously, you guys are playing right now, so it'll be interesting to hear if we hear anything in the background from you. Um, but otherwise, mate, how have you been keeping? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, just um, staring at a lot of Zoom meetings, occasionally getting fresh air. So, yeah, standard week in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. And you can't go wrong with that, can you, right now? So let us start off, guys, by talking about that big news that came out of Glasgow. So the fat lady was clearly singing it in Glasgow for Neil Lennon, uh, who ironically, a day after Scotland declared what would be happening in terms of getting out of lockdown, he resigned from Celtic, much to Rangers fans' disappointment. And I suppose it came off the back of another defeat to Ross County. They lost that 1-0. And I noticed a lot of the media were focusing on him apologising to the fans, which I found quite ironic, really, given his stance for the last sort of 12 months about that. Um, even more laughable is around Celtic fans' optimistic thoughts on who's going to replace him, mentions of Xavi and Rafa Benitez. Um, and before we go and get Craig to read the riot acts, um, Andy, what was your thoughts about the resignation from Lennon? Oh, I think it's um, been coming. I mean, it's probably a bit of an out there theory, but I don't think it's a, a massive coincidence that, you know, I said it in our chat that, you know, now that there's a possibility of crowds coming back before the end of the season and to be even more cynical, you know, season ticket renewals are going to be start happening at some point. I think uh, that is potentially the reason why, um the management, you know, Neil Lennon and the board have gone, actually, let's just uh, shake hands and walk away. Because uh, I think, you know, the first game back, if Neil Lennon was still there, it was going to be absolutely toxic. Um, I mean, I still don't think it's going to yeah. be particularly great when the fans do come back, especially if it is before the end of the season. So I think they've just tried to take a better pressure off themselves. I, thought, I think they've decided to sort of pull the trigger a little bit um, and maybe give themselves a bit of time to make a, a proper t- decision. Whether they're actually, I think there's a bit of a disparity between what they want and what they'll get, which I'm sure we'll discuss. But yeah, I think it's um, it's an uncharacteristically sensible thing, I think, that's been done. Long overdue, but I think if you're a Celtic fan, it was probably needed. And thinking about that, who do you think realistically Celtic can actually bring in to replace Lennon? Because... We've kind of covered on the pod before around the fact that Celtic really don't have a lot of money at the moment. 
and they clearly need to be in those Champions League spots to really recover some of that kind of money and funds, lack of funds, should we say. So who do you reckon is realistically the kind of person they should have for that role? It's a tough one because, you know, although we don't have um, the money, obviously the, the one of the advantages of taking over one of the big two in Scotland is that you do get regular participation in, in Europe, um, you know, provided you're not getting pumped by random sides in Eastern Europe like Celtic were, but typically <laughs> you could expect at least a few games. So I think with that in mind, they should still be able to attract a good quality manager. I think if they really, I think if they're being ambitious like they were when they bought Brendan Rodgers in, I think if they had that, that level of mm. ambition, they'd bring in someone like Rafa Benitez. But if you bring in Rafa Benitez, who, let's be honest, was a little bit scarred by his experience of working with Mike Ashley, he's going to want at least adequate resources behind him to build a team. He's going to want a defined management structure, with, you know, all focused on building the best possible squad that Celtic can have. Uh, I don't think they're in a position to give that to someone to like Rafa Benitez at the moment. Uh, the other thing as well is that Celtic might go the other way, which is go for somebody with a connection to the club. Uh, so one of the names that might mm. pop out is Roy Keane. Um, and, you know, to be fair, he got Sunderland promoted... Um, you know, back with his first job in management, he did play for them. You know, he's an Irish lad, Irish Catholic from Cork, and all that. So, in terms of getting the club, which is like a seems to be a quality which, uh, like, like Frank Lampard gets a job, um, it, it could be an out there one. Um, but it's what's probably going to happen is they're probably going to get someone like Mark Hughes or something like that, and I doubt they'll be. Or, or they'll try and promote from within. Both scenarios I don't really think Celtic fans would be happy with. So, yeah, who knows? <laughs> and Craig, I don't think you're going to really give a damn who Celtic bring in because at the moment you're in dominant form right now and you showed out on Saturday when you beat Dundee United 4-1. So, amazing win for you guys. Something you shared on the WhatsApp group to me and Andy was around the fact that, obviously, if Celtic get a bad result against... Aberdeen this weekend, then you guys can wrap up the title on March the 6th. Um, it feels so early to kind of confirm yourselves as champions, but the way you guys have been performing right now, it's like mesmeric. So how are you feeling about the prospects of winning this early? I feel obviously feel really good about it. Um, it's, you're right, it's very strange for any team to wrap up the league in early March, particularly in Scotland, when you've always got the two, the two big going at it. Even John Barnes, Celtic side, when they were up against that Dick Advocate side, were closer at this point in the league than, than what New Lennon is. So mm. they, are, they are miles behind. Um, and I did some maths last night, you're right. A draw at Aberdeen on Saturday means that the best they can finish on is, is 85 points. You're currently on 82 points. Um, so potentially, you've got two games next week, Livingston and St. Marin. If we win both of those and Celtic slip up, we win the league next Saturday afternoon. If they don't and they win their games, then we go to Parkhead on the 21st, the Sunday only even a draw. Um, and Andy spoke about the sort of the foregone conclusion of New Lennon leaving the role. It was almost, Andy's right, it was a foregone conclusion, but it was also a surprise at the same time because it got so bad and so toxic that you thought, well, if they haven't sacked him before now, then he's going to just see the season out. So to be sacked on, uh, I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday morning, I can't remember now, was a little bit of a surprise. I suspect... 
um, that Neil Lennon has, has realised that the league will be wrapped up at Celtic Park and he doesn't want to be the man in the dugout to, to, to be there for that, which is what my, my general feeling is. Um, but yeah, Roy Keane, the, la the last thing that scenario in that situation needs is pouring fuel on a fire, inserting Roy Keane into that environment. Um, and then don't worry about Rafa, Rafa Benitez, you'll get more chance of getting Rafa Nadal parking up at Celtic. It's not <laughs> going to happen. Brendan Rodgers was on two and a half million pounds a year. And that for Scotland is insane money for a manager. Mm. Insane money. Um, Rafa Benitez is not going to come for that. Um, Xavi, I've heard mentioned, Xavi's on eight and a half million pounds a year um, out in the Middle East. Xavi is not coming to Celtic. So, yeah, I stand there at who they thought it will be, either I promote from within. I've also heard Steve Clark, the Scotland manager, being mentioned. Mm. It's not a bad thought. He's um, He's got a bit of a Celtic connection as well. I believe he's a supporter. Uh, he's done a fantastic job getting Scotland to the Euros in his own special way. I think if they go to the Euros, um, have a good time, have a bit of a party, I think you know him stepping down from that role, achieving what he has done in the short time, and potentially taking over Celtic back in the summer wouldn't be the worst thing. Um, but yeah, I think Celtic need to aim a little bit lower. They've not got the money, and to be fair, a lot of clubs don't have the money. That's why I think some managers are probably still in a job when in other seasons they wouldn't have been. Only clubs like Chelsea are going out and sacking managers, and PSG are sacking managers with the big contracts. Um, so there's there's not a lot of money slushing about in European football, especially not in Scotland. So I can't mm. see them going big. But yeah, very very interesting. But we're getting we're getting towards the end now, and yeah, can't wait. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, just a thought on the Celtic manager kind of position. Do we think someone like Jack Ross, who's doing a reasonably good job at Hibs, stands a chance, or do you think it's probably too early for him to go into that environment just right now? I would say it's probably a little bit too early. His, his reputation was damaged slightly by his time at Sunderland, um, mm. which was kind of brought over. Again, quite a difficult club to manage. He's done a reasonably good job at Hibs. They're going to finish third this year, looking likely, which, you know, from a manager of that Hibs um, Aberdeen fraternity, it's as good as you're ever going to really achieve um, with the budget difference between the old firm and the rest. So he's done what's asked of him um, this year. He'll probably get maybe get a chance at a European UEFA Cup qualifier next season, so maybe we'll rest the for that. I think Jack Ross probably needs to do a year or two more uh, at a club like him before he takes that step up. But there's no doubt in his, his, his ability. I think he will be a good manager going forward, but probably maybe a year or two just too quick for, for one of the top jobs. And just a quick question, obviously, historically, it looks like you guys are going to dominate that SPL. Would this be potentially your best ever season in the SPL? Uh, in terms of points tally, very, very much so. Um, so we are potentially, we've played 30 games and we haven't lost yet. So we're, we're well on our way to 100 points, which which would be phenomenal, our best season ever. Yeah. We've obviously had, we've had momentous seasons before. Um, you know, cup winners, cup wins, we've won nine in a row ourselves. I think in terms of Rangers history, it's one of the biggest seasons ever. Um, to come mm. back from where we've been, the, the, the deepest of holes, to come back, to, into the Premier League to stop Celtic and their biggest it's, it's, it's Celtic's biggest season ever forget they won yeah. the Europe, European Cup in 67 they've won nine in a row themselves this this year was Celtic's biggest ever season in their history and for us to come back and do it is one of the biggest you know stories ever in Scottish football so yeah it's absolutely biblical and Steven Gerrard I know he's a, a Liverpool legend and they adore him but believe me that man has got no idea what adoration is and he will not be prepared for the love he's <laughs> going to get when he wraps up this title 
Well, it's certainly building it up. You guys just beat Royal Antwerp, so you beat them 5-2, yeah. so that's 9-5 on aggregate. So you guys obviously right now have no fear. You just take on the world right now. You must have that sort of self-belief right now, even though you probably could say on the balance against your bigger kind of sides, they've got maybe better quality players, but that's the self-belief that Stevie Gerrard has instilled into the players. So, I mean... He's done his business early as well, as we reflected a few weeks ago. So you've got the foundations there, right? And this must be like a contrast to the position that Rangers have been in the last sort of nine to ten seasons, right? Oh, it's night and day. It's night and day, Adam. I wouldn't say we've got no fear because some of that defending tonight was pretty frightening. Um, <laughs> I can see some of the goals we did tonight. And in the next round, if we draw a Man United or an Ajax or any of those teams, we're going to have to defend an awful lot better than that. But you're right, Steven Gerrard, the unit that he's built, particularly in Europe, he's got an excellent record in Europe um, against some yeah. decent teams. It's not jobbers. I mean, we've drawn with Benfica twice. We've beaten Porto, Feyenoord, Young Boys, um, Braga twice over the last two seasons alone. Now, you're absolutely right. There are no players in this squad that are Ali McCoy's, Paul Gascoigne, Brian Loudrup level by any stretch. But you've got to, you've got to say that what these guys are doing in Europe now surpasses what the guys um, achieved in the mid-90s. So, no, he's done a fantastic job, Stephen Gerrard. Um, and I can't see him being here an awful lot longer. I think maybe we'll get another season or two out of him. But he's definitely attracting some attention mm. down south with the record that he's had. So we'll move down south to the Premier League. And Andy, you guys obviously secured a really good win against Newcastle. Um, Newcastle obviously lots of question marks. And uh, we've had a listener question about the relegation battle that Newcastle potentially face. But let's focus quickly on Man United. So in terms of the goals, um, obviously good goals. But were you a bit concerned about how Man United have been dealing with, in particular, around set plays? Because obviously that seemed to undo Man United in this game initially. Um, And yeah, I didn't know what your thoughts are going forward, whether... You know, that's signs of Man United needing to strengthen in that defensive lineup. I mean, it's not a new thing. Um, I sort of uh, get nervous every time a set piece occurs. I mean, United conceded a last minute set piece to Everton, which cost them um, in, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah, you know, for whatever reason, um, well, I say for whatever reason, there is a reason. We've always been vulnerable for set pieces. Um for some reason in the league, especially, the, although he keeps persisting with um, Lindelof and Maguire. And it's just not a partnership that mm-hmm. works. It just does not work in any way, shape or form. Um, I've said beforehand um, why it doesn't work. So I won't go into it too much. But yeah, it's just, uh, for, for example, of St. Maximan, you know, we started the game badly. Like one thing that he does, he cuts in, he shoots. He might not always hit the target, but if you keep giving somebody four, five, six opportunities to do something, a Premier League player is at some point going to take one. Um, and, the, you know, yeah. the goal was just a really poor, really poor header. Dropped, took it first time, really good finish. And for the first half, especially, we just couldn't keep hold of the ball. Um, again, like Fred's just can't seem to retain possession that well, keeps losing it. Unless it's like a simple sideways pass, you always feel that you might lose it. Um, you know, the best passer 
one of the best passes in that squad is Maguire, but unfortunately um, he, he lacks in other areas such as, you know, actual defending. Um, so, yeah, it was a little bit shaky, um, but, you know, Marcus Rashford, I think it was a welcome return to form for him. Um, skinned the defender, cut, turned the other one inside out, slotted it in. Um, you know, when he's playing from the left and cutting in, I think that's his best role. I don't think he's a out-and-out number nine because he's not clinical enough to be that. Uh, but he will cause absolute havoc. And I mm. think um, Dan James deserves a little bit of credit as well. I mean, again, I've, I've said it before that he, he's never really struck me as a sort of player that's good enough for Manchester United. Um, and I think there is still probably still time for that to be proved wrong. But, you know, fair play to him. He's coming against Sociedad last week, scored a nice goal. Um, another good finish again as well. So maybe, he's you know, he's been working on the training ground, adding a bit more to his game. And who knows, he could be, I don't think he'll ever be a regular starter. But, you know, the good Manchester United size of older built on the likes of Darren Fletcher, who didn't start every week, uh, John O'Shea, Wes Brown, you know, those kind of players yeah. that, you know, do ask to come in to get a specific team to do a specific job. And we did it well. Um so that, you know, so that was that was that. You know, Bruno again. I mean, that it wasn't one particularly great performances. Still comes up with an assist and a penalty. So uh, yeah, I think we did what we needed to in that game. I don't think you know we should be winning against Newcastle. And you know, in response to the relegation question, I think um, it'd be a crime against football if Newcastle stayed up this season. It honestly would, <laughs> uh, because they're so absolutely terrible they just don't you know i just they just don't deserve it um i think fulham have now you know they're now within three points i remember when we were talking about three or four weeks ago they were like 10 11 points behind uh so they've made up a lot of ground in a short Mm -hmm. space of time and there's still about there's still 13 games left of the season so yeah i think um you know united have got some pretty tough fixtures coming up uh we've got chelsea uh, this weekend, which will be uh, somewhat interesting. Um, sorry, uh, <laughs> West Ham this weekend. I was getting my fixtures mixed up. So we've got uh, West Ham at home. They're usually a tricky side. You know, we've got um, obviously Chelsea, United as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. And Craig, just question on Newcastle. Obviously, we've covered them in the pod around their relegation potentials. Um how poor are Newcastle? Because on that showing, they were just horrendous, weren't they? It's just a lack of ambition, isn't it? From from the players, the, the coaching staff, all the way up to the owner. They're just they're quite happy just to finish 16th, 17th every season, and that's enough. And eventually, like we've seen that will bite you, a la Watford, Bournemouth and co. So they, they lack quality. The only quality players they've really, really got are your likes of St. Maximan, who are very, very mercurial. They have one good game and then three poor games, and that's not enough to keep you in the league. I wouldn't be sad to see them go. But they are a, a reasonably big club, but uh, I don't think anyone in the Premier League will miss them. Interesting talking about Fulham. We all spoke about them three weeks ago, about um, potentially being saved. Would you like to hazard a guess at who's playing each other in the last day of the season? Is it by any chance Fulham and Newcastle? Fulham and Newcastle last day of the season. So hopefully... Um, it will be as tight as it is now going into that game. It looks as though the top of the league's probably settled, so it's good to have a really a proper, genuine relegation battle to keep it interesting. Yeah, that will be good if it goes to the wire. 
Right, well, we'll also move on to another team that we spoke about last week, which was Spurs. And another question we had was uh, from Fiona asking, Craig, can you predict Jose Mourinho to be the next manager to be sacked? <laughs> uh, clearly, um, Spurs are starting to wind up their own fans now uh, after that 2-1 defeat against West Ham. And it seemed like a quite straightforward win for West Ham. I mean, granted, second half, West Ham were clinging at times. Um but I think one of the things that was really obvious is how poor Eric Dyer has been this season, especially a bit of scrutiny on him and his defensive abilities is about on par with Jaden Sancho's German accent recently. But um, yeah, I mean, what else can like Spurs do right now? And I thought it was quite telling by um, the interview where Jose Mourinho was asked about the performance and in particular around uh, West Ham's second goal and he said it was the amazing ridiculous goal and you could just see in his head he's thinking about Jesse Lingard's goal celebration in his head while that's going on and you could see him trying to break his neck it was that obvious um, but it was ironic we also spoke on our WhatsApp group saying wouldn't it be funny if this was his last game whereby it was his first game when he took over at Spurs so um, what did you make of the performance? And more importantly, how much more time has Jose Mourinho got? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It was almost comfortable for West Ham, particularly in the, the first half. And when you give a team like West Ham an early goal like that, it gives them something to defend against. And they were really, really good. Spurs, poor in the first half. I think Gareth Bale definitely added a dimension. I thought Gareth Bale was probably his best performance since he's come back, really. Um, he has to start going forward for me. But Jose Mourinho was not brought in for Spurs to finish 7th in the Premier League. Um, like Andy said last week, he's not, he'll be on a fortune. Money's not around for most clubs. I think there seems to be a bit of hero worship between Levy and Mourinho. I don't know what it is. You can, I saw that in the documentary. I felt that sort of Daniel Levy was sort of, oh, I can't believe I've got Mourinho. Which I think might buy him some more time. I've got a funny feeling Mourinho will see this season out. I think you'll see it out. I think he'll be there in the, there in the summer um, and then we'll get the inevitable meltdown uh, in August, September time and he'll be sacked before the next international break in August, um, October time. I think he'll be there. Uh, unfortunately for Spurs fans, I know Fiona and she's, um, she didn't like Mourinho to begin with <laughs> or hates growing week <laughs> by week, I think. And Andy, um, what have you made of, obviously, your favourite player, Jesse Lingard and how he's been performing right now for West Ham? Because seems like, obviously, weights off his shoulders right now. He seems to be playing with a lot of confidence. Um, would you have him back at Man United, out of curiosity? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think um, Jesse Lingard, I don't think he's good enough to come back to Manchester United. He's not been a regular uh, for a good 18 months now. Um, you know, like I said, there's, with respect to West Ham, you know, Manchester United, you know, should be challenging for trophies, titles and that kind of thing. And he's not going to be that player who um, gets us there. Um, I think, you know, looking back, he scored some important games, like, for example, the FA Cup final that we won in 2016. Uh, he scored in some key Europa League games of the year that we won that. Uh, but, you know, with the likes of Bruno Fernandes coming in, we you know, we've upgraded and Donny van der Beek in reserve as well. Um, you can see why he barely gets a game. Um, you know, I did think uh, he was a little bit immature at times in terms of how he conducted himself, especially for, you know, 27, 28-year-olds. Uh, but he also was going through stuff on a personal level. But no, I think West Ham's a good club for him. I think he's the sort of player that needs to feel a little bit of love. 
Um, he needs to, you know, he needs to be at a club where he's mm. starting every week. He's got the full backing from the manager, and he can he can just go out there and play and be himself. Um, I think at West Ham he's been given the conditions to be able to do that. Uh, so I think you know the best scenario really is that he does really well at West Ham. He gets regular game time. Um, and that allows Manchester United to get a decent fee for him in the summer because I think West Ham will, will probably be interested uh, in keeping him permanently if he carries on the way he is. Yeah. Um, and also, apparently, Leicester are also interested as well. And I could see Brendan Rodgers doing quite a good job, um, you know, especially as like a squad player. Um, and I think referring to that Tottenham West Ham game, I think as Craig said, it's the best I've seen Gareth Bell play for a long time. Um, you know, to put not too far the point of it, it looked like he actually gave a fuck for once uh, and, and started turning it on. <laughs> yeah. uh, he scored a good goal earlier today, actually. Uh, nice first time finish. So, yeah, maybe we finally got to the point where Gareth Bell is fit. Um, and if he is fit and he's playing the way he did in that second half last week, he's got to start every week because, you know, it's not like anything else is working for Jose at the moment. Um, you know, and Eric Dyer is well, just Dyer. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but yeah, midweek obviously those guys they've won four nil against Wolfsburg as well, and Deli Ali turned up. So I mean, there's a lot of question marks, I suppose, around who's the best eleven right now for Spurs. Um, but while we're on the theme of Spurs, we had a question last week that came in late, so we couldn't squeeze it into last week's episode, but just to uh, get your thoughts on it. So our friends from the Anglo-Italian pods, we had Rory sent us a question who's, he stupidly set up a bet basically with a Spurs fan and uh, he wants us to help him settle a bet as to whether he's brave in thinking that Arsenal are going to finish above Spurs. So Andy, if start with you, was he wise or is he absolutely stupid? I don't know, because they're just both as absolutely terrible as each other at the moment. Um, so, I think had we asked that question at the beginning of the season, I probably would have said it would be like a safe bet. Um, if I had to sort of put some money on it, uh, which I really wouldn't, uh, <laughs> but if I did, <laughs> and a gun to my head, I'd probably say Tottenham might just edge it still. Might go to the derby, I think, to make that decision. But yeah, Craig. I'm looking at the table now, and Spurs are two points clear with a game in hand from an absolutely rotten run of the one lap, one of the last six. I think Spurs for me probably edge it, but not by much. I think they'll both end up finishing seventh and eighth or eighth and ninth, which for for both clubs is an absolute disaster. So even if Spurs did finish above Arsenal or vice versa, I don't think it's anything to be really proud of this year. And we won't dwell too much on Arsenal's performance against Man City because it's quite a boring match. I think the highlight for me was seeing Shao Cancelo shank his clearance and forcing Edison to kind of do the same. But that was basically the highlight of that match for me. In the meantime, Andy, I believe you owe an apology to um, not only Crystal Palace fans, but also the Belgium contingent from South London. And boy, did they make you ram your words down your throat. Um, Crystal Palace obviously did a smash and grab over Brighton. Uh, They won 2-1. But before we ask, uh, obviously, Andy to make a grovelling sorry or apology to our Belgium friends, um, just to reflect on Brighton's performance in this match, so Brighton had 25 shots compared to Crystal Palace's three. 
They also had 52 touches in the opponent's box versus Crystal Palace's two. 13 corners versus none for Palace. They had 75% of the possession versus 25% for Palace. XG-wise, there were 2.5 versus Crystal Palace's 0.2. But as as they say, stats don't win you games. So um, let's start off with you, Andy. Let's start off with that apology. To the people of Belgium and associates and supporters of Crystal Palace Football Club FC, last week on the Hopeless Wonderer podcast, I made comments alluding to two Belgian strikers, Michi Batshuayi and Christian Benteke, who I didn't remember at one point. I said they were both absolutely useless and they wouldn't win another game without them. Contrary to events that transpired in Brighton, in which the uh, world-class greatest striker of all time, Christian Benteke, scored a 95th-minute winner for Crystal Palace against Brighton. Upon upon this result, I would like to apologise to absolutely nobody because it's Brighton and they're both still absolutely shite. (laughs) <laughs> um, Craig, I uh, don't know if you saw this match but um, typical Brighton just can't finish off chances and um, although they're playing really attractive football and they've been the former sides boy, did it come back to smack them in the arse on that match I didn't watch the game because yeah, why, why would you if you were a neutral but <laughs> yeah, I, I saw the fallout I saw the fallout and I think I read somewhere that Brighton had 82% possession in the first half, which tells you all you need to know. And we spoke about Brighton quite a few times when we had the guys from the the podcast on. Brighton are probably a good finisher, away from being a decent mid-table side. They they really are. I I think they're that good. I do rate them. Um, And it's just classic. Roy Hodgson against your rivals. You absolutely bath them. We beat Celtic 1-0 in January. We didn't have a single shot on goal. We scored an own goal. Um, and so I know what it's like to win these games. The League Cup final last year, we had the opposite and we lost the games. I've been there. It's gut-wrenching. Um, but yeah, it's just Brighton all over. It's just Brighton all over. I think they'll be safe. Mm. I don't think there's any danger in there. But surely, surely they need to go out. I know they got um, Danny Welbeck this summer uh, and they signed a boy from, I believe, Chile or Uruguay, somewhere in South America. But they yeah. are just one, one, even a guy who could get 15, 20 goals, just one guy away from been a seriously decent mid-table side. But yeah, Palace just doing doing Palace things. I think they've probably got quite a lot to worry about. They've not got 15 players plus Hodgson out of contract yeah. in the summer. They just need to be really, really careful uh, about what they're doing. But yeah, like you said, the stats don't win games. So yeah, fair enough. And Andy, what did you make of the goals? Because in particular, that first one was a stroke of genius, wasn't it, from Benteke? Yeah, it's just... Well, you never know. That's he obviously been listening to the pod last week, and he's just like, right, I'll show you. He's probably got like my face on the sticker on the dressing room wall or something. I don't know. Uh, I don't think I'm that relevant. <laughs> so, but um, no, it, it was just. Uh, it's weird though because Christy Metzke does have like a bit of a track record of doing some out there genius shit. I remember when he was at Liverpool, he scored an absolutely outrageous overhead kick in like his first game for him. 
Um, he is one of those players that just like, very occasionally has popped sort of a great goal. Uh, I think it's probably worth mentioning, you know, before we went to Liverpool, he was a regular, you know, 50, 20 goal striker you know, back in the days when he was at Villa. Um, it's just that I think after his experience of coming to Liverpool and being instantly not wanted, and then obviously the difficult kind of structure they have at Palace, which is not really ripe for a good a striker to score 15, 20 goals a season. Uh, it might be worth giving him like a, a little mm. bit of leeway there. But, you know, I think he went like 13 months with like one Premier League goal. Um, so, yeah, it's, I guess, a very, very, very overdue ret- return to form. And his finish for the last goal, I think, was really good. Like, you know, he hit that of a confidence of a striker who's been banging him in all season. So, yeah. We'll move on to the uh, Liverpool derby as well. So Liverpool lost to Everton 2-0. And uh, we had another audacious kind of stat that came through from Liverpool fans. So Thiago Alicantra has now completed the most finger-pointing on a pitch against Everton, completing 37. Um, But a more relevant stat, really, that sums up Liverpool season right now came from Duncan Alexander, who shared Liverpool have lost four in a row for the first time since the television was invented. And the television was invented back in 1927. Um, so, yeah, some stat. But, yeah, how good were Everton? If we start off with yourself, Craig, I mean, really great smash and grab performance. I felt their celebrations were a bit over the top. I don't know if you saw some of what was coming out from that celebration win, but... Yeah, you have to hand it to Everton. They really did quite well. And it wasn't kind of like just pure fluke because they had a number of chances where they could have won the match more royally and easily. Yeah, you're right about the television in 1927. The Queen was born in 1926, which gives you an idea of how long that record's been been held. <laughs> Everton were, were pretty good. I thought they were pretty good. I thought Carlo Ancelotti brings a calming influence to that team. Um, the celebrations were a little bit over the top, but. If um, if we hadn't won it at Parkhead for for twenty odd years, um, we'd be doing the same. So I, I totally get it. I totally get it. But yeah, those defensive problems for Liverpool aren't going away. Uh, the first goal, yeah. the the Charleston goal, was just you watch that unfold and thinking you, you just can't play like that. And I, I, you know, three weeks ago, I'd have said Liverpool were having a stinker, but we'll probably still finish top four. But I don't know. Man. Every week, every week goes by, and I'm thinking it's less and less likely. This is probably other than potentially Leicester, one of the worst title defences I think we've ever seen. And Andy, I know, gets, gets a bit wound up when people compare them to the, the Sir Alex teams, but I think all talk of that is, has been put to bed. They're, they're nowhere near uh, that level. But, yeah, Everton, fair play to them. They're one of those teams where they can do that. They can do that, but yeah. then they can get beat at 1-0 at home to Fulham. If I was an Everton fan, I would be so frustrated and, and so angry at it missed opportunities. This this Everton team have obviously got talent. The recruitment's been pretty mm. good. They've got a world class manager. The environment's right for them to really go and do something special. But they they throw in these silly results. I think they've lost to Newcastle as well this season. So they need yeah. a bit of consistency. I've seen that they've just had their new stadium signed off, half a billion pounds on Everton Docks. It looks phenomenal. I mean, yeah. it's an absolutely phenomenal stadium. So they're all set up to have a good a good few years, but. Yeah, just a bit, a bit of consistency and they could potentially do something special. 
And Andy, I was going to reflect on that. So Everton have got a game in hand over Liverpool. They're joint on 40 points each. I think the main thing that's a concern for Everton is that consistency piece where they just seem to be getting into these promising positions but never seemingly trying to win those games that they should do. Do you think they've got it within them now, between now and the end of the season, to kind of maybe overtake Liverpool in the standings as it is? It'll be still be a big ask for them because they don't have like a huge amount of depth uh, outside of the first eleven that they've got in the team. Like for example, if you take uh, Rodriguez out, if you take Luca Dina out, if you take Calvert Lewin out, it's a massive drop in quality, and they haven't really got much in the way yeah. of you know adequate replacements. When you sort of look at their squad, um, I think they'll finish in like sort of the Everton position really, which would be about seventh or eighth. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, I think it's referred to another podcast as the Everton Cup. Uh, you know, they'll finish, um, I think, <laughs> in the you know, sixth or seventh. Um, I think that'll still be an all right season for them. But yeah, you know, as Craig said, there's new stages. It's been in, it's been in the works for quite a few years. Um, and I think it's really good for that club, uh, probably for the city as a whole, that they've got appro- approval for that. I think by getting a stadium of, you know, a, mo- a good proper modern stadium will allow them to compete a little bit more uh it's not a guarantee of success um because obviously if you look at Tottenham stadium move that hasn't guaranteed anything uh West Ham stadium move went even worse so you know just because they're moving to a new stadium doesn't mean they'll be infinitely better but it does create typically more of a feel-good factor right we'll move on to Champions League so without further ado let me play the music start off by kind of reflecting on a very uneventful kind of first set of games so um, we'll just go into it and say Craig from the uh, selection of matches that we saw this kind of last few days was there any particular surprises from your point of view in terms of results? Um, The biggest surprise for me was how poor Lazio were actually um, I backed a draw in that game I actually thought Bayern Munich are a little bit leggy I watched them play Frankfurt at the weekend and they were quite poor. Lazio are okay in Serie A. I thought that would have been a much, much tighter game. I think the Lazio boy had a, a really poor pass back in the first five minutes. And you cannot, you could not have given that ball to a worse person on the planet than Lewandowski. You just yeah. put that goal in. And then you're five minutes into your home leg and you can see an away goal. And after that, the writing's on the wall. You just capitulated and they were really, really poor. Really, really disappointed in Lazio. And then... Uh, yeah, Chelsea away to Atletico. Atletico are quite poor, but they've got some problems with selection. Kieran Trippier is out, and they seem to struggle yeah. without him. Um, and then I watched Atalanta Real Madrid last night. Red card, twenty minutes. I thought it was probably yeah. quite fair. I know the commentary team on BT Sports thought it was a bit harsh. I thought it was probably fair on balance, uh, and it kind of ruined the game a little bit. Atalanta just sat in, then very attack versus defence, and in the end, Real Madrid were probably good value for the goal. Um, yeah. And then, and then Man City went away to Gladbach and, and do what Man City do. Very, very comfortable. Um, it could have been four or five if they really wanted to. I think they were quite happy with the, the two away goals. Pack up and get home. Yeah, nowhere near as nowhere near as fun as, as last week's Champions League. No. And we've got a, a week off next week until the, the, the tunnel legs. But yeah, very good. Mm. And Andy, we had a question come in for the pod just asking, are we 
as a pod thinking that Spanish dominance in Europe has come to an end. So obviously last week we had severe kind of crumble against Borussia Dortmund, which we didn't anticipate. Personally, I didn't anyway. Um, but Real Madrid weren't particularly special, if I'll be brutally honest. They were quite fortunate to beat Atalanta. And it was a great strike by Mendy, but nonetheless, obviously, they're not the same force that they were a couple of seasons back. And obviously, we reflected on Barcelona's performance last week as well. So, Atletico this week, really disappointing performance, really lacklustre. But I still feel like Atletico have something to offer in the second leg. So, let's start off with yourself. What do you think about this Spanish dominance? Is it coming to an end? Um, Maybe not quite. I think it might be a little bit premature um you know at the end of the day it's only one nil uh to Chelsea and if you look at the performance that Atletico put in against Liverpool at Anfield last season um you know they're, they're more than capable of uh, putting in a result um same with Real Madrid you know I said it last week you know Real Madrid don't seem to turn up until like the quarterfinals or the semi-finals of most competitions. Uh, they are a team that seem to know they could turn it on for, you know, certain games. You know, they may be not capable of 38 games of consistent performances, but they are more than capable of getting out of bed uh, for three, four, five games. And I think that's why they've always done well in the Champions League because, you know, you've only really got to have mm. five or six really good games and suddenly you're in the semi-finals, you're in the final. Um, so whether they'll win it or not, I think it's still open for debate, but there's, you know, I think they win with a chance. I think Sevilla are cooked. Um, Barcelona are absolutely cooked. And I don't see, especially Barcelona, I don't, them, I don't see them challenging in the future for another few years. Um, you know, with Real Madrid, their their transfer window, their transfer policy is also a bit odd because they started without a recognised striker. So they had Mariano Diaz on the bench, who's probably the only recognised number nine they've got in their squad at the moment because they let Luka Jovic go um, on out on loan okay. because obviously Saddam clearly doesn't fancy him. Uh, I think Madrid, Real Madrid would be in a better position, I think, if uh, Zidane moved on. Uh, because I don't think Zidane has the ability to bring in a new generation of players. And I think they need, they need a manager who can bring in the younger players uh, with, a, you know, with a slightly different way of playing um, and start easing out the big personalities. Because uh, I think that's why Zidane's in there at the moment. He knows how to keep the big personalities like Ramos on side. Uh, there is going to come a time where they're going to have yeah. to move on. And they need a manager who's able to deal with that transition while still being matching the expectations that uh, Real Madrid fans have. Um, I thought the, the red card, I looked at it about six times. And it, I think it's one of those, if you were on the opposite team, you'd want you'd want them to be given the red. <laughs> like if you're a Real Madrid or you're in that <laughs> position where you've been fouled running through on goal, um, it'd be a red. I think the only debatable part of it was he... The, the touch was taken a little bit wide of goal, and and it's then it's just a, a subjective point of view. Does he have a pace to catch up with his bad touch, and would he have, would he have got a shot on goal from there? And also, would the covering defender have got back? There's no 100% certainty with it, but at the end of the day, if you're going to foul, if you're the last, if you like the last defender, and you foul somebody, someone goes past and you foul them. <sighs> 
you kind of bring it on yourself. Like you shouldn't be putting the referee in the position where he's got to make that decision. Um, so yeah, I think although it was maybe a little mm-hmm. bit harsh, I think it was still technically speaking a correct decision because you know it was it didn't get the ball at all, and it, I would have interpreted it as an opportunity on goal. And Craig, what's your thoughts on the Spanish dominance piece? I mean, certainly we're seeing in the national side, they haven't been kind of the same and we kind of expected that because obviously it was a generation thing where they had really some talented youngsters and it's going to take some time before you see that. But we're starting to see that in club level as well for Spanish clubs. So do you think they're going to struggle to rebuild that again? Or do you think it's just a minor blip at the moment? Yeah, there's two questions. And the first one is about the rebuild and Barcelona and Real Madrid will both struggle to rebuild. Both have got quite ageing squads. The spine of, of each squad is, is on its way out. Uh, and to build those, rebuild those squads with, with quality will cost a fortune. It's a fortune that neither team really, really have. Uh, in terms of Spanish dominance, there's definitely a, a, a changing of the guard, I think. I don't think Real Madrid are in any danger of going out against Atlanta in the home leg. I agree with Andy. I think there's more, still more to come in this Chelsea game. I don't think that's done either. Um... But we're at the situation now where if a Spanish team was to win the Champions League this year, we'd consider it an upset. I think that speaks volumes where I don't think you could have said that probably in the last 10 to 15 years. There's been definitely a changing of the guard. Uh, They don't have the finances that the Premier League have, that Serie A have, or even the Bundesliga have now. Um, And like you said, that generational talent that Barcelona had, that Cristiano, Ronaldo, Bale, Benzema trio, I mean, they, they don't have the money to replace him. They'll be able to go out and get one or two, maybe each in the summer, but yeah. it's not going to be the, the rebuilding job that they really, really need. And I can't see either of Barcelona or Real Madrid seriously challenging um, the likes of Bayern Munich, Man City, even PSG, um, yeah. really for the next few years. So I think there probably is a bit of a, a change at the guard at the very top of European football. And a quick word on Chelsea's performance. Obviously, a quite contrast in comparison to the Southampton result where they drew one all. Um, obviously, I thought. Tuchel was kind of very brave with his um, substitution on that match where he brought off Callum Hudson-Odoi. By all accounts, he wasn't kind of doing the job that Tuchel had sent him out on that, um, I think it was second half, wasn't it? Um, And brought him off again. So obviously that kind of setback sort of set a tone for the rest of the squad. And you saw his performance really light up in midweek. So... Um, did Tuchel play a blinder by setting that tone with that substitution? Start off with yourself, Craig. I think so. I think uh, Tuchel was obviously quite frustrated. They must talk about it all weekend training, what our positions are off the ball, what is expected of you when we don't have the ball. And if you put on one of your players and you see very, very quickly that he's not listening to what he's saying um, and he's doing his own thing, then you have to set that example. I thought it was the right thing to do. He came out in the press afterwards, I think, and was quite blasé about it and just was like, yeah, didn't do what, I, what was expected of him from, from a player of my team. Took him off. But it was fantastic to see that Callum hudson a young guy, could have taken that the wrong way. Could have spat the dummy out and really sulked. Yeah. But like you said, last night he came back all guns blazing and that is exactly the the, the attitude and the result that Tuchel would have wanted. So yeah, it looks like a masterstroke. Could have gone the other way, but it looks like yeah, it's a definitely. bit of a masterstroke from the general manager, yeah. And Andy, I don't think I would have personally seen Lampard do that kind of substitution. Um, so, yeah, I think it definitely shows you the difference in terms of the quality and the kind of, you know, belief that Tuchel has in terms of what he's going to do with this Chelsea squad. So, yeah, 
I mean, brilliant performance by Chelsea midweek as well in that Champions League. So it's got got to be positives, right? Yeah, I think you you are sort of seeing why Tuchel is a definite upgrade on Lampard. Um, you know, you can't imagine Tuchel being the, the kind of guy that would have left any sort of minor detail out during the week of the training ground. You know, he wouldn't have been a just he wouldn't have been sat there going, Oh, just do your best, run about a bit. He would have been given very, very specific tactical instructions. Um, you, you know, as Craig said, he Hudson-Odoi would have known what his role was and what he was supposed to be doing when he came onto the pitch. So, yeah, and that's what you know managers are paid the money to do to make, um, you know, seemingly you know unconventional decisions, um, and it come off. Um, and you're right, you know, Hudson-Odoi is a fantastic player. Uh, there's a reason why you know Bayern Munich were happy to part ways with a lot of money. Um, I think. Once he gets starts getting some consistency and a run of games, then you'll probably see what he's really made of. Um, but you know, to come on in games and make an impact, he's very good at that. Um, yeah, I think I don't think Chelsea would be winning this game if Lampard was still in charge. I think Lampard would have gone out in a bit more of a free flowing, um, you know, just tried to go attack, attack, attack. It would have been picked off on the counter as Lampard's sides. Mm did quite frequently uh so yeah um and that Giroud goal was oh it's lovely like he's just one of those yeah. guys that he, yeah, you know wasn't that yeah I mean it's what I mean I'm also jealous of him because he's got a much better beer than I'll ever have uh which is really annoying um <laughs> it's a bit of bit of beard envy and then aside from that his goals are just brilliant like he, he always seems to be a scorer of classy goals <laughs> rather than the score of a load of them. Uh, you know, although he's like 34 now or 35, you know, you can see why he's still starting for France. He's got a really good first touch and, um, you know, lays it off. He adds, like like I said, he's very much like a throwback kind of like number nine, like target man. Um, so, yeah, he definitely mm. adds a job. And like I said, that's kind of why I think Chelsea are dark horses because they have got uh, the quality of players to be able to hurt any team. Um, so yeah, maybe it's not a huge shock that they're in the position they're in at the moment. And I think with Tuchel being the coach, I think they've got a hell of a lot more of a chance than they would have done a couple of months ago. Right, we'll move into Europe and there was some incredible games, incredible goals. So we'll start off at Serie A where we saw Inter Milan dominate AC Milan and um I think that performance kind of reminded me of the Conte days when he was at Chelsea and dominating, being clinical, workmanlike, but as a whole team, they all pulled together. I mean, you even had Christian Eriksen doing his defensive duties, which was like a surprise for me personally, because I could never see him doing that at Spurs personally. But Lukaku, again, just in in incredible form. And Craig, you watched it, I watched it. Like The guy is phenomenal. I don't know what what else you can kind of say in terms of superlatives. He is just on a mission right now. Yeah, well, he's one of the the absolute top strikers in Europe. Uh, I only watched the first half because Rangers started at three o'clock on the Sunday. So yes, I did turn off the Milan derby to watch Rangers <laughs> versus United. So one of one of the the downsides to being a Scottish football fan is sometimes you have to watch some dribble rather than watching some of the good games. But in, Inter were great. Inter were great. Lautaro Martinez and Lukaku is one of those partnerships. Big man, little man, it's a bit of a, a sort of 1990s throwback, but it just works so well. Yeah. And Conte's got them all playing together. There's, you're right, Christian Eriksen, I've never seen him put in a shift. 
like that. And with with Barella, um, Bastoni and the guys we spoke about with Tommaso when, when he was on the pod, yeah, they just seem like the most complete team in that league, um, moulded in, in Conte's image. And that's over the last four weeks they've beaten Milan, Lazio and, and Juventus. And that's why they are now four points clear. And you have to say, looking at it on balance, they, it's their league to lose now. You really would say. But yeah, they were excellent. Uh, I think I, I reasonably... Decent performance from Milan in the, the beginning of the second half. I think Hadanovic had to make a few saves, but then yeah. they got the third, and that was and that was it. That was it, never in doubt. But yeah, it looks like it's still league to lose now. Yeah, I have to say, from watching um, obviously the whole match, AC Milan did seem like they were struggling for ideas, and in particular, I mean Ibrahimovic couldn't inspire much fight up top. Um, it to the point that like they were just ping balls in hope rather than thinking that he was going to do something with it. Um, and you could tell that it almost feels like AC Milan are just falling off a cliff right now. They just have that, you know, t- typical kind of performance where they seem to really be striving for that top spot, but they're really falling apart right now. Um, so, yeah, I could see them falling for the next few matches as well, to be honest, based on that form alone. Um, but just to kind of sum up Serie A, obviously Atlanta beat Napoli 4-2 of an impressive performance win there. Lazio, before obviously this game in midweek, had won against Sampdoria. Um, your team, Craig ben- Aroma, drew 0-0 with Benevento. That's a bit of a surprise yeah. maybe to you guys, but he seems to be slipping up there yeah. because Juventus won against Crotone 3-0 on Monday night and that kind of seals your fate at the moment where you've dropped into fourth place now behind obviously Juventus and as it stands obviously there's not many points in it right now when I'm looking at the table but obviously Juventus have got that game in hand so obviously it's a bit disappointing right from your point of view yeah Juventus have the game in hand the game in hand is against Napoli that was the, the kind of Covid postponed game from earlier in the season and playing Napoli now is a very, very different prospect to what it would have been putting them back there. Napoli are, are really, really struggling. We spoke about Gattuso. Um, the manager, Claxon Sakin, is going to ring here. They've been put out of Europe by Granada of, of Spain tonight. I think Gattuso might be sacked before they play Bologna at the weekend, is my prediction. Yeah. I think he, he's going to go. Um, the result at Juventus bought him a, a week or two. But that result at Atlanta was, was exceptionally poor. Going out against a, a, a bang average Granada side in Europe is humiliating. Um, so I think we might get some news over the coming days about about Reno. But yeah, Roma sat, sat in fourth. Juventus are third now, but they have the game in hand. Uh, I think just looking at it now, one point ahead of Atlanta. So really, top four is all Roma can really aim for now. After a, a reasonably decent start to the season, but I think top four, top four will, be, will be our goal now. So as it stands in Serie A, Inter leads the table. Behind them are AC, followed by Juventus, Roma, Atalanta, Lazio in sixth, and then you've got Napoli in seventh. Um, we'll bring in yourself again, Craig, because on Saturday, obviously, we saw that shock Frankfurt win against Bayern Munich, 2-1 win. Uh, thanks to goals by Kamada and Eunice for that particular winner for Frankfurt. Uh, Lewandowski obviously bought it back for Bayern, but... I saw a bit of the second half and I have to say Bayern Munich really struggled in this match. I don't know if it's a bit of fatigue again, um, but defensively they are really poor. And when you look at the goals conceded, they are in that top six mix, one of the worst teams right now in terms of goals conceded. Um, so what did you make of that Frankfurt versus um, Bayern Munich match? 
Yeah, first of all, I didn't, I didn't think it was that much of a shock. The reason I watched it was because I thought there might be an upset in there. And Bayern Munich, even before they went away to the World Club Championship, I spoke about them on the podcast, looked quite leggy. Obviously, they went there, which is, I don't know why we're playing that tournament in, in <laughs> the current times that we're in. It's just, it's just ridiculous. They came back, they, they drew against newly promoted Bielefeld at home in the game after that. They went 2-0 down in that game. Managed yeah. to bring it back and drew, throw, drew three each. And then Frankfurt, who are flying high, um, they're sat in fourth at the moment. The first half, Frankfurt battered them. I mean, I think I text you guys in the group. Frankfurt were all over them. They pressed really, really well. Every time Joshua Kimmich received the ball from the centre half, there was two guys up his arse, really. He just couldn't get turned and play anything out. Leroy Sani was really poor first half with a slightly better performance in the second half, but I can understand why the Bayern Munich fans are getting on his back. And there was a lot of him strolling around and not really pressing in the first half. In half-time, um, I thought that everything that Frankfurt did well in the first half, they stopped doing in the second half. They were 2-0 up. I felt they started to sit back a little bit. Bayern Munich had a bit more of the ball. Lewandowski got his customary goal, as he does every week. But there didn't really seem anything else. And in the last 15-20 minutes, you have to say that Frankfurt, although they were defending and had to defend well, they looked relatively comfortable. Um, yeah. And then Leipzig went away and beat Hertha Berlin. Hertha Berlin are struggling. They're one to watch, actually. They've spent a lot of money. They're a massive club. They, they sacked their manager and their sporting director earlier this season. And they are, they are flirting with relegation. And for, one of, for Hertha Berlin to get relegated would be a catastrophe, an absolute catastrophe. Yeah. So they're worth a watching. And now Leipzig are, are two points behind. They play each other in a few weeks' time as well in Munich. The first game of the season, those two put each other was three each. An absolute classic. So... You never know. You never know. Bayern Munich look just shattered. They're almost like Liverpool. They just look absolutely shattered. Um, and I think if Leipzig go out of Europe uh, next week against Liverpool, which is looking likely, and if Bayern progress and still have to play twice a week, maybe that fatigue will come in. If yeah. Leipzig have, you know, seven days to prepare for every game, it might be a telling factor. So it's looking like, you know, where we were three weeks ago, the league looks sold up. It looks like it's just starting to open up a little bit in, in Germany. Definitely. And uh, Sabitzer's goal for one of them was oh, incredible, yards, wasn't yeah. it? Phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, and talking about hipsters, obviously, Schalke succumbed to a 4-0 defeat <laughs> against Dortmund uh, in the Riviera derby. Um, so Sancho and Haaland scoring some incredible goals in that match. Um, but yeah, famed for uh, Sancho's German accent. I don't know what you guys made of it, but it had a twang of uh, Steve McLaren's Dutch impression. I don't know what you you rated uh, oh, Andy or Jerry Barton accent, or anyway. Jerry Barton's French. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which one was worse? That'd be a good Twitter poll. That which is the worst accent? Jerry Barton's French accent, uh, James <laughs> Sancho's German, or Steve McLaren's Dutch? <laughs> oh dear! But if we uh, just cover off the Bundesliga, Munchen Gladbach. In terrible form right now, uh, lost 2 1 to home at Mainz. And Union Berlin beat SC Freiburg 1 uh, 0 away as well. So essentially, as it stands in the Bundesliga, Bayern Munich still top, followed by RB Leipzig, Wolfsburg in third, Frankfurt fourth, Leverkusen fifth, Dortmund now climb up to sixth, and Union Berlin in seventh. And if we move on to League On, so PSG succumbed to a 2-0 defeat against Monaco. Uh, Monaco again keeping up some fine form right now. Um, but also, I think we've got to make some more noise around Lille 
Lille had an impressive 4-1 win against Lorient and they seem to be, you know, striving ahead right now in Ligue 1. Obviously, there's still a three-point gap between them and Lyon. But, Craig, if we start off with yourselves, um, what happened with PSG? And do you think PSG still have it within them to kind of bring themselves back up that table? I think you've got to still think that PSG, they're only four points behind. Um, that they would be the favourites to win this league. Lille are playing well, but one of those teams that I see them top of the league and I always think they will eventually fall back to the mean and the, the big boys will take over. But fair play to them, they're churning out results. PSG, after that high of, of midweek, were at home to Monaco, conceded very, very early, uh, which meant that Monaco had something to defend, not too dissimilar to, to West Ham against Spurs. Monaco sat in and Niko Kovac, for all his faults when he was at Bayern, can organise a defence. Um, and they, they sat and eventually won 2-0. Poor performance from PSG. They're four points behind. Um, yeah, but I, I would still fancy PSG. I think PSG, when they get Neymar back, when they get Di Maria back, I would still think they've probably got enough firepower um, to go yeah. all the way and win that league. Uh, Andy, uh, we wanted to talk a bit about the Euros as well. Um, so obviously news landed that potentially the Euros are going to be played in England. Um, but we also had a few movements in terms of players choosing their nationalities. So I shared on the group earlier tonight that Mikel Antonio has decided to pick Jamaica over England. I think there's a lot of English fans that are going to be crying tonight. Um, but more more realistically, um, we had also the Bayern Munich midfielder, Jermaine Musalia. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Probably wrong. Um, but I know Craig's got a bit of information on him as well. But let's start off with the Euros in particular. So what did you make of that announcement? Extremely premature. Because um, obviously the government, you know, for anybody that's not in the UK, <laughs> the government have announced, um, or England rather, uh, have announced their sort of roadmap for coming out, out of lockdown. And... Um, no, everyone else has gone, provided everything goes absolutely perfectly and then no hiccups at all on June the 21st, um, pretty much any restrictions that are out there at the moment will be gone and they'll be able to welcome you know, full capacity crowds back to stadiums. Uh, what, what seems to have happened is rather than go, let's see what happens, everyone's gone, party! Um, and because of the COVID situation, you know, in the UK and but in Europe, um, UEFA have been discussing, they've been discussing it for a while of um, changing it back to a one country format, uh, which you normally do. Um, and they've decided that because of the infrastructure, um, it, the UK has in terms of public transport, the amount of stadiums that they have with big capacity. And I guess if you consider it another way, the relatively small size of the UK in comparison to other countries, say like, no, like Germany or France, for instance, it does make a degree, it does make a de- degree of sense logistically. Um, I just think it's a little bit premature to be having, you know, it's one thing being able to sit in the pub with all your mates and have a pint. It's an entirely different thing altogether to have all of Europe on your doorstep in 90,000 seater stadiums where this pandemic sort of hasn't gone away. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm although I've been generally speaking, like, you know, like everybody else, we want to go out there and live our normal lives. You know, nobody likes lockdown. 
Uh, I just think, um, yeah, 90,000 people in a stadium or hundreds of thousands of people at, say, Leeds and Reading Festival is a little bit premature, to say the least. And Craig, let's start off with Musiala. So, obviously, real talented midfielder, um, came from Stuttgart, spent some time at Chelsea before going back to Germany. Obviously, he said recently in a sort of press conference that he was uh, with a heavy heart kind of chose Germany as he felt that was the best career progression for him. And he shared about Joachim Love and Oliver Bierhoff really being influential in that decision making. Um, Do you think England have missed out on a really talented midfielder there? Yes and no, probably, I think. Yes, in the sense that he is a, a fantastic talent. I've watched him a few times. I think he's played about 20 games a season on and off the bench. Um, obviously a very talented boy. I think he's 17 now. Um, but England are not short of options in attacking midfield. You know, you've got to look at Jack Grealish, Foden, Mount. It's not as if there's a, a lack of talent there. So he is a good option. I think part of the reason for Germany is what I've just said. There's more chance of him probably getting caps for Germany um, than England at the moment. Mm. I know that Joaquin Love had a, an influence. Also, he's quoted that Joshua Kimmich and Thomas Muller were in his ear almost daily at Bayern Munich, <laughs> telling him to tell him to come and play for Germany. And he scored midweek and he become Bayern Munich's youngest ever Champions League scorer. Um, and to do that is not a, is not to be dismissed. That's a massive accolade to the amount of young German talent that that team have brought through over the last 20 years. Um, but you're right, he was born in Stuttgart. Um, I think his mother's German, his dad's um, a mix of English and Nigerian. Mm. Lived in England for a bit. Um, I know Andy's told us that he played for Chelsea Youth and then moved back to back to Germany. So I think he spent half of his life in England, half of his life in Germany. Um, so I think he's chosen for the, the country of his birth and probably quite a pragmatic approach of, I probably got a better chance of playing for Germany in the next 10 years than, than playing for England, which is which I don't disagree with. That's absolutely fair. And Andy, you're going to be crying about uh, Mikel Antonio picking Jamaica over England? Not particularly, no. Um, <laughs> I think... <laughs> Like, yeah, it's he's, he's he's a good player, um, but England have got you know up front are not short of good strikers. Um, at the end of the day, he's, he's thirty years old. He's not going to get any better than he already is. Um, you know, we've got we've got the likes of Harry Kane, Marcus Rashford. You know, Danny Ings are probably at the top end of that. Um, you know, you've got even beyond that, you've got Patrick Bamford, who's a little bit younger, scoring lots of goals. You know, they've got lots of players in attacking positions that you know are younger and um, are more likely to. Uh, to be able to do a job for England in the long term. Um, and I think with um, the Jamal lad from Bayern, I think England, this is going to sound a little bit mean, but they seem to be um, a little bit, I don't know, xenophobic in a way, because England have always had a rule, like an unwritten rule, that unless somebody's been schooled in England, like literally gone to school in England, they won't consider somebody for a call-up, even if they've been in the country for five, six, seven years and, um, you know, grown up in England. Um, and I think with that this particular situation, I don't think England in any way went out their way to try and get him to play for them. You know, there was no, um, there was lots of mm. media kind of noise about, 
oh, we should should sign them up for England. But you didn't see Gareth Southgate going over there and watching him and Gareth Southgate going over to Germany, talking to him, talking to his family, talking about how he's going to fit in in the next two, three, four, five years. And I don't think there was any of that. Whereas I think with Germany, I think, you know, in the interview he did with the Athletic, he felt an attachment to both countries, but it felt like Germany wanted him more. Um, And you could... Even in you know, yeah. if you have a choice with international football, uh, then you, you're going to go with where you feel as though you're going to get the most support. And as Craig just popped in our little wee chat thing, um, yeah, I probably will end up apologising to Jamaica in the World Cup 2022 when they knock out, <laughs> you know, England or something due to Michael Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll start writing the apology letter now. <laughs> We'll move into part two. So, Craig, give the listener a flavour of what's happening this weekend with fixtures. Yeah, of course. So, Friday night, I've picked out three games. Bremen versus Frankfurt, half past seven. We've got Rennes at home to Nice and France, since 1945. And then Tino versus Sassuolo, also 1945. Into Saturday, Man City play West Ham at half past 12. Pep Guardiola already had a little kick on BT Sports uh, in his post-match saying that they had to fly back from Germany. Take a leaf out of Jurgen Klopp's book on that one. Uh, you've got Spezia at home to Parma, 2 o'clock. Bayern Munich host Cologne at half past two. Celtic Aberdeen, 3 o'clock. West Brom and Brighton. Again, a game I wouldn't normally watch, but a little bit of spice given where both teams are on the table. Sevilla versus Barcelona. There's a big game in Spain this week around quarter past yeah. three. PSG visit bottom club Dijon at four o'clock. Bologna versus Lazio at five. Leeds versus Villa, half past five. Leipzig versus Gladbach. So it doesn't get any easier for Gladbach. They go to Leipzig at half past five. Verona host Juventus. And then a big derby in Portugal. We don't really talk about Portuguese football, but Porto versus Sporting at half past eight. Uh, and then into Sunday, Sampdoria versus Atalanta. That's the half past 11 game. I picked out four games at 12 o'clock. Wickham versus Norwich on Sky Sports for a change. I mean, that'd be nice for yeah. Wickham fans. We've got Leicester versus Arsenal, Palace versus Fulham again, a tight game at the bottom, and then Monaco versus Brest. And to half past one on Sunday, we've got the big game in the Netherlands, PSV versus Ajax, Spurs versus Burnley, and Inter versus Genoa, both at two o'clock. Uh, another big game in the Netherlands, Alkmaar versus Feyenoord at quarter to four. Lille versus Strasbourg, four o'clock. Chelsea, Man United, half past four. Leverkusen versus Freiburg and Napoli versus Benevento, five o'clock. Sheffield United, Liverpool, quarter to eight. Roma versus Milan at 19.45. That's the big game in Serie A this weekend. Marseille host Lyon. Marseille desperately need to win. That's at quarter to eight. And then Villarreal versus Atletico, eight o'clock. So, uh, Villarreal tonight who have won in the Europa League Atletico there to go there and get a win so that's going to be a tough game and then into Monday I've highlighted just a couple we've got St Pauli versus Hamburg which if you're not familiar with German football you might overlook that game but that's in the Zweite Bundesliga half past seven that's a massive game in northern Germany uh, Everton versus Southampton and then Real Madrid versus Real Sociedad they're all on Monday night and then of course no European football next week it takes a break and we yeah. return in a fortnight and Andy going into that game on Sunday you guys obviously away to Chelsea um, yeah what's what's your thoughts do you go into that game with a bit of confidence or are you uh, starting to feel that like this is going to be a tougher game than anticipated I think if Frank Lampard would have still been there we'd beat him um, 100% 
because they would have just come on to us, we'd have hit them on the break, we'd have scored three or four goals and that would have been it. Um, but I think um, it will be a much tougher assignment this, this time round. Um, so I still think we'll win because our waveform is really good and um, I, I still think we've got the you know the pace to hit them on the break um, and I think Bruno's probably due a, a performance a really good performance against a big six team uh, so yeah uh, I'm going to err on the side of optimism and uh, go for like a 2-1 win away and Craig uh, all Rangers fans are Aberdeen fans for this weekend is that correct? Well, some are and some aren't. So Rangers okay. fans are split at the moment. Some are saying, "Well, we hate Aberdeen anyway." I mean, yeah. <laughs> we hate them as well. But some fans are saying we want Celtic to win their two games so we can win the league at Parkhead. Some Rangers fans, okay. like myself, I'm in this camp. I'd rather win it beforehand and then turn up to Celtic Park as champions. So a bit of both. I'll probably watch that game. I broke the habit of a lifetime and actually watched Celtic against Ross County on Sunday. I'll probably watch this game as well, just out of interest. Um, because it's got a massive decider on uh, where the league will go. It's the first um, game for the interim manager, John Kennedy. So it'll be interesting to see how they line up. But yeah, um, I'm quite, I'd be quite happy for Celtic to drop points and then for us to wrap the league up seven days seven days later. And we did joke this on our WhatsApp group, but um, there's not going to be a guard of honour at Parkhead from Celtic if you guys were to be champions going into that match. No, so it was a it was a bit of a thing last year when Neil Lennon came out and said, "Well, we we said we're not doing it. We were just not doing it." <laughs> and Neil Lennon came out and said, "Oh, we would have done it if it was the shoes on the other foot. We would have done it because it's the right thing to do." Um, but I can't see them sticking to that. It just it's not a thing in Scotland. It never has been. Rangers um, and Celtic's a little bit different to to most derbies, and we won't. I don't expect a guard of honour at Parkhead. <laughs> Right, well, we've come to the end of the pods. Just want to say a massive thank you for the feedback that we've been receiving for our video pod that went live on Monday. So we'll be continuing to do that. So every Monday, you guys will be able to experience the video pod, uh, whereas on a Friday morning, you'll get the actual voice pod itself instead. So please do subscribe to our YouTube channel and um Please feel free to suggest any content that you guys would love to see from ourselves because, um, yeah, I'm sure the guys would be behind some different alternatives for the week as well. Um, so just make sure you search for the Hopeless Wonder podcast on YouTube and click subscribe. So without further ado, uh, thanking you, Andy, and thanking you, Craig. Hope you two have a good weekend. And to wish the listener a very good weekend or week whenever you're listening to this. And for another week, thank you and goodbye.